few years ago, I was uh, traveling in the Chicago area, and I stopped at a rest area off the interstate, and I went in, and uh, this is a pretty big rest area, and so they, they have a lot of folks come through. So as I got to where the bathrooms are, it was obvious you went down one hallway, and then the women went this way, the men went this way. And as you went this way down the hallway, there would be two large rooms with sinks and facilities off of this hallway, both were men's rooms, and they had these big gates they could bring down. And as I passed the first one, it was, the gate was down and the man was inside. There was an attendant cleaning, cleaning that bathroom. So I went on to the next one where the gate was wide open and there were people in there and I went in and was using the facilities. And, and uh, while I was in there, I heard kind of a rumbling roll and then a clang. So I washed my hands and came around the corner where I could see the big entrance and Sure enough, uh, the gate had been lowered and came to the floor and was locked. Kind of like those gates you see in the store at the mall at the end of the day. And here I am on the inside and uh, the attendant apparently had uh, finished up that bathroom, closed this one and left and here I am on the inside. It was a little bit embarrassing, you know, to be trapped inside, and so I'm trying to figure out what am I going to do. I'm, I'm looking, maybe there's another door, and he, he just knew I could get out, and he didn't just overlook me, and I was thinking, in an elevator, if you get stuck, there's a phone or a button you push, and so I'm looking around, nothing. I'm trapped inside this restroom at this rest area. And so I begin to debate what I'm going to do because as I'm looking out, I'm really just looking at the end of the hallway. The people are way down there and they're stopping and going in that restroom. No one's coming down to the end of the hallway. And so, you know, if I'd had a tin can, I would have just taken it along the uh, bars of this thing to get somebody's attention. But I'm kind of yelling and I'm trying to do it, you know, kind of cool and humble, playing it cool, like, hello, anybody help me? And Finally, uh, another guy who was stopping at the rest area kind of heard my voice and came on down and was looking at me like I was an animal. And was like, what are you doing in there? And I told him what happened. He went and got an attendant, and I was freed from that trap situation. Now, in life, we can go through times where we just all of a sudden realize we're boxed in. Our circumstances have made us trapped. It can be in relationships with our family, friends, coworkers. It can be financially or medically. There are circumstances that can make us feel trapped. Today, as we look back into the Old Testament book of Esther, I want us to talk about when life has you trapped. Some of you came in here, and indeed, there are circumstances you're going through that you feel completely trapped. You don't even know how to move, where to move, what to do because of how boxed in you feel, and that's a hopeless feeling. We're gonna again look into this wonderful book of Esther. It's one of the last historic books of the Old Testament. Uh, the setting of Esther is uh, about 500 years before Jesus walked on earth. We looked at the opening of the book and the background of the book last week. We talked about how God used some foreign nations to judge his people, but he'd promised that after decades of judgment, they would again return to the land, and that indeed is what happened. The Persian Empire now rules the world in the book of Esther, and um, in years prior to this book, uh, Jewish people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem after God's judgment on them for their wickedness and their idolatry, and they're returning to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, and God has raised up through some crazy circumstances a young Jewish woman who has not returned to the land, who's still living in Persia, in the capital of Susa, a woman named Esther. 
And Esther has been raised up to be the queen to the emperor of the world, the largest empire the world had ever seen. She's the queen to King Xerxes. And in chapters three and four, she goes through and her people go through some very depth from some very desperate circumstances, they feel completely trapped. As we look at Esther 3 and 4, I want us to understand this, that when you run out of options, things seem hopeless. Everything seems hopeless. You can have hope because your God never runs out of options. You may think there's nowhere to turn. You may think the gate is down and there is no room for you to move and you don't know what to do and things seem hopeless in those circumstances you're going through. But remember, with your God, there are always gonna be options. Now, sometimes there are options we may not choose. Sometimes he may not take us around things or out of things. He may take us through things. The psalmist was really clear where our hope comes from. Psalm 62.5 says, yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. We'll see today how in the midst of this hopelessness, there is a giant glimmer of hope. And we'll see how that kind of glimmer of hope can be a part of our circumstances, even if we feel trapped today. Again, Esther chapter three, Esther is queen. It's been about Five years, according to verse seven of chapter three, since chapter two. Remember, there were three and a half to four years between chapters one and two. So as far as uh, the story goes, she's been queen now for about five years. And remember, Xerxes had had a, a major defeat. He was defeated by the Greeks when he brought overwhelming power, and so his armies and his his uh, ships have been destroyed. He is weakened internally. Someone could rise up and, and take the throne. He has threats from the outside. And that's where we are when we come to Esther chapter three. Now I'm gonna be reading from the New Living Translation. You can find that in the Bible app or, or maybe you have your Bible in front of you, a different version. The NIV is what I usually read from, but I think sometimes uh, the New Living Translation, which can be very accurate, also is very readable when we're going to be reading long portions of narrative Old Testament Scripture, and I'm, I'm using the New Living Translation today. Let's look at verse 1 of Esther 3. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, so we get this character here that we haven't heard from yet, Haman, son of Hamedadeth the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded. But Mordecai, remember Mordecai is Esther's adoptive father. It's actually her cousin, but she was orphaned. And her cousin Mordecai raised her, and so he is her adoptive father. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. So this character named Haman is exalted to the second most powerful position in the Persian Empire, the empire of the world at that day. And the king says everybody needs to bow down to Haman because of his power and his privilege and his position. And everybody is doing that, and we know that Mordecai works at the city gates from chapter two, and when he worked at the city gates, that's where the court system kind of was, and so he's somehow connected with the official functions there. But Haman's been put in charge, and whenever Haman passes by the city gates, all the other people bow down to him, but to Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who's like a father to her, he won't bow down to Haman. Now, some scholars believe it's because 
Maybe Haman has set himself up like Nebuchadnezzar did, almost like a god. And of course, Jewish people couldn't bow to a god. But remember in this book, God's name is never mentioned. We never have God's name in any form, in any way, but we see the invisible hand of God working in the book, in his sovereignty and in his providence. Other scholars say, now you know what this is? There's something between these two guys. Mordecai knows the real character of Haman, and he won't show him that kind of respect. Respect is the issue here, not an issue of worship. For whatever reason, Mordecai won't bow to Haman. And so others start noticing, and they go to Mordecai, and they say, what's the deal here? Why won't you bow to him? And he really doesn't give them an answer, but he does reveal to them that he's Jewish, and so that implies he maybe knows that Haman hates the Jews. And we pick up the story in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. If they killed every Jew in the empire of Xerxes, all 167 provinces, that would include Jerusalem and Israel, it means there would be no Jews left. Now you remember, God had given to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, a promise. Through him, he would make a great nation, and through that great nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He would send his Messiah and his Redeemer. So God has this covenant relationship with the nation of Israel, his chosen people. He's going to use them to bring the Messiah into the world. But Haman hates these people, and when he finds out Mordecai, who is a Jew is not bowing, then he says, this gives me leverage to destroy all these people once and for all. So then he decides that he's gonna put together a law and get Xerxes the king to sign it, he's second in command. He calls for Purim, which is a, a description of an ancient set of lots or dice. So he calls for dice, and what he's gonna do is he's gonna cast the dice because they believe the gods controlled the dice and that they would determine what day all the Jews would be killed. And so he rolls the dice, the Purim, and it ends up on the farthest distance out the, the lots would allow or the dice would allow. So it's 11 months out on March 7th, 11 months from now, we'll have all the Jews killed on that one day. And some of you know Purim. We'll talk about that more, the Feast of Purim, as we get into the next section of this book that is still a festival and feast recognized today comes from this story of Esther. We read in verse eight, then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, there is a certain race of people scattered throughout all the provinces of your empire who keep themselves separate from everyone else. He doesn't mention their Jews, just a certain group of people, King. Their laws are different from those of other people and they refuse to obey the laws of the king. So it is, so it is not in the king's interest to let them live. This isn't good for you. After all, you're weak on the inside, you're weak on the outside. Somebody could attack us, somebody could rise up from within. I just got your back, king. We gotta get rid of these people. If it pleases the king, issue a decree that they be destroyed and I will give 10,000 large sacks of silver to the government, administrators be deposited in the royal treasury. Xerxes needs money. 10,000 sacks of silver in that day, some scholars estimate, would have been two-thirds of the national annual uh, gross domestic product, the GDP of the Persian Empire in the time. Where's Haman going to come up with this money? Well, one, it appears that he's a very wealthy man, probably has bought this job. But two, when all the Jews are killed, 
They'll take all the stuff the Jews owned and all that property and a bunch of it will go like a tax to Xerxes. So Xerxes is saying, okay, we're gonna get rid of some troublemakers and I'm gonna make a lot of money. What's bad with this plan? Verse 10, the king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said, the money and the people are both yours to do with as you see fit. He gives him his ring, and that's the signature. It'll be sealed with wax on all of the documents that'll go out. So the documents go out to 127 provinces. There's this decree. 11 months from now, on a specific day, all the people of Persia are to turn toward their Jewish neighbors and kill them on that day, and then everybody gets to take their stuff, and everybody will be taxed on that stuff, and that'll go into the treasury. This all sounds good. Can you imagine knowing for 11 months? Now, let me remind you. Can you imagine knowing this for 11 months that you're gonna be killed, your neighbors are gonna be called on to kill you, and if they don't kill you, they'll be imprisoned for disobeying the emperor. 11 months. Also remember, the laws of the Medes and Persians were such that once an emperor made a law, not even he could undo the law. He couldn't change his mind once his signet ring was pressed into that decree. The decree goes out in verse 14. A copy of this decree was to be issued as law in every province and proclaimed to all people, now notice this, so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. What's their duty as citizens of the Persian Empire, the, the large empire in the world of that day? What's their duty? 11 months from now, March 7th, you're gonna turn, kill your Jewish neighbors and take their stuff and be taxed on it. At the king's command, verse 15, the decree went out by swift messengers and was also proclaimed in the fortress of Susa, which is where Xerxes lived, it's the capital of the Persian Empire. Notice this, then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa fell into confusion. People are like, what? I gotta live with these people and they know that 11 months from now I'm gonna kill them? You know, here, here's a cup of sugar, oh by the way, it's 10 and a half months till I kill you and take your stuff. Confusion sets in, but notice the callousness of Haman and Xerxes, they sit down and have a drink. Now, I think in the book of Esther, and particularly these first three chapters, and even here in chapter three, we see some of the same variables and factors and realities that create situations in which we feel trapped. There's some common denominators here in the book of Esther that are true to, in our lives. They're, they're part of this hopeless stew of hopelessness. And some of these variables are probably true in your own feeling trapped. And maybe they're things that you did, maybe it's things others have done. But I wanted to share with you quickly nine factors that make up this hopeless stew in the book of Esther that we often see in our lives. Again, whether it's something we've done or others do that leads to us feeling trapped. This is life seems hopeless because of nine things. Number one, the existence of common suffering. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We are Flawed people living in a flawed world with other flawed people. There is a judgment hovering over earth and Jesus will come one day to set it all right. But right now there is a common human suffering we all experience. That's a part of the story of Esther. Maybe that's a part of how you feel trapped. Secondly, the overindulgence of sensual appetites. You go back to chapters one and two. If you weren't here last week, listen to that message. You just get the sense there are all kinds of sensual immorality and part of that is the stew that has led Esther and Mordecai uh, and the Jewish people to a place of hopelessness in the story of this book. 
Thirdly, there is the ignorance of blatant favoritism. How did Haman become number two in charge? He just shows up in chapter three. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read the last few verses of chapter two, Mordecai, Esther's cousin who raised her, discovers a plot to kill Xerxes. He spreads word to Esther, the queen, and and that plot is destroyed, and uh, Mordecai's name is written in the history books we read at the end of chapter two because he saved the king, the emperor's life, by discovering this plot and exposing it. And so the way this is written under the direction of the Spirit of God is at the end of chapter two, you expect that when you get to chapter three, even though it's five years later, you're gonna find Mordecai as the right-hand man to the king. Instead, it's Haman. Sometimes there's blatant favoritism. Life isn't fair. Maybe you've experienced that at work or even in your family relationships or with friends where there's favoritism that has boxed you in because someone else has paid their way, deceived their way, climbed the corporate ladder, stepped on you to get ahead, and you just say, life isn't fair. Life seems hopeless because of this fourth thing, the influence of raw greed. King Xerxes, you've been pretty weakened and you'd like to have some money in the the empire's treasury so you could rebuild those ships and rebuild your armies so you could go after the Greeks again. And so there's this raw greed that enters in and sometimes it's the raw greed of ourselves or others that creates circumstances that make us feel trapped. Fifth, the arrogance of manipulative people. Notice how Haman uses half-truths. There's a certain group of people, I'm not gonna name them, who are probably a problem to you, and you could just kind of wipe them out, and you could, you could get a lot in your treasury, and so he's manipulative, and many of us know, we've seen people who've been manipulative in our personal lives, or professional lives, and some of the circumstances that come from that can make us feel trapped. Six, the consequence of past failures. Not only our own past failures, but the past failures of others. Sometimes even going back generations have natural consequences in life. Notice Haman is an Agagite. Say that a few times, Agagite. That's not a real easy name to say, but he's an Agagite. Now, the Agagites were a section of the Amalekites. And if you know the story of the Amalekites, there are people that sought out to destroy the Jews early on. As a matter of fact, they're the first people group ever in world history to try to annihilate the Jews. If you go back about 400 years, 500 years before the time of David, almost 800 years before the time of Esther, You have the story of Moses leading the nation of Israel, God's people. They had emerged not just as a family while they were in Egypt, but they emerged as this mighty nation. They're being led by Moses from slavery in Egypt, this emerging nation of of Israel, into the promised land. And the first group of of people that attack them in their journey are the Amalekites. And they defeat the Amalekites, and God says to Moses, these Amalekites are gonna be a pain, and uh, down the line, I'm gonna have some leaders of my people destroy these people and wipe them off the face of the earth because they're so evil and they're so set on destroying my people. And remember, God is protecting the nation of Israel throughout the book of the Old Testament because he's promised that through them will come this Messiah. And so the Amalekites make this attack and God says to Moses, don't worry about them, I'm gonna take care of them one day. In 1 Samuel 15, the first king of Israel, again about 500 years after Moses, the first king of Israel, King Saul, defeats the Amalekites and God says to him, I want you to kill everything, their cattle, their sheep, everything and everyone, including King Agag of the Amalekites. 
Saul kind of looks at it and goes, you know what, if I could just bring Agag in as one of my servants, and I could get his cattle and his sheep, I could be wealthy, I'd be this powerful person in this part of the world if I, I was able to amass their wealth and keep Agag as a servant, so I'm not gonna kill Agag. And God confronts him through Samuel. He lets Agag live. He disobeyed God, and here we are now, 500 years later, God had told Moses, he's gonna destroy those Amalekites. He told Saul, here it is, you got your, your foot on their throat, you have gotta get rid of these people, they're gonna destroy, they're the most anti-Semitic group in all the world. And Saul says, maybe I can get something out of this. And now we have a descendant of Agag. And Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish people have to deal with this anti-Semitic man named Haman because there was disobedience and failure in the past. Sometimes our own failure, the failure of others, leads to us being trapped in our circumstances. Seventh, the tolerance of racial hatred. It's very clear in this text that Haman hates the Jews and wants them eliminated. Throughout history, it was the Amalekites, then it was Haman under the time of Esther. Then if you go forward about 300 years to 173 BC, you have Antiochus Epiphanes who tries to destroy the Jews. 175 years before Jesus, he tries to destroy the Jews. He, he insults and, and just puts it in the face of the Jews by slaughtering a pig on the altar at the temple. And, and throughout world history, Jewish people feared that name Antiochus Epiphanes because he was so evil and so disgusting in what he did to try to annihilate the Jews. Only one name knocked him off the most anti-Semitic of people in the world, and it was a name in the 20th century, Adolf Hitler who killed six million Jews. And yet God protected them because in the scriptures, God even has protection for these people into the end times as a part of his covenant relationship with them. But there is this tolerance of racial hatred that's seen throughout chapter 13. Sometimes it happens still in the American culture because of someone's skin color or because of their accent or because of their background. They're different than us. They're not like us. Their ethnicity. And there can be just a little bit of bias. That bias can become prejudice and that prejudice can become all-out racism. Sometimes that bias and prejudice boxes us in because we're victims of it or because we allow it to fester in our relationships and in our circles. Eight, the indifference to human life. The indifference to human life is also seen here, and it's also one of those things that adds to the stew of hopelessness, not only in Esther, but in our lives. God says human life is valuable. Every human being, from conception to death, is designed in the image of God, and life is precious and valuable. And yet in our world, it's not only abortion and euthanasia, but sometimes in video games and movies, life is perceived, human life is perceived as expendable and, and just some sort of flesh that's discarded. And when you have that low view of human life and don't understand the dignity of every human being in the eyes of God, it creates an environment where hopelessness can set in. Ninth and finally, there is the absence of God's intervention. Again, God's name is not mentioned in this book. We see his hand behind the scenes and see him sovereignly working. But you don't see God just all of a sudden sending an angel and resolving things in that kind of way. Sometimes in our own lives, we have all this stew going, and maybe for some of you, it's just one or two of these things that has affected you because of what you've done or others have done or the circumstances of living in a broken world with broken people. Maybe it's three or four. For some of you, maybe it's eight or nine of these things are the reason you feel trapped and hopeless today. Question number one, do you feel hopelessly trapped right now? 
Maybe there's a certain segment of your life you just feel like there's no way out. There's no resolution. The other night, uh, I went out in the garage about eight o'clock. The garage door had been closed for a couple hours and I walked out to get something and as I stepped out, there was this little bunny, a little rabbit, trapped in our garage. And he just started darting everywhere, banging into boxes, the freezer, the walls, everything, just banging around. And I knew I needed to step back or this poor bunny was gonna kill himself just by banging into stuff. So I backed out and I opened the door a little peek and he's sitting there kind of in the middle of the garage. He's just breathing real heavy. He's looking at me, just breathing real heavy. You could tell he felt trapped. And he was trapped. There was no way out. So I thought, well, I'll open the garage door. And I hit the button. I closed the door. And I thought, I'll go back in an hour. And he'll be gone. The big garage door is open. I go out, and he's still sitting there. It's kind of a box blocking his view of the door, I guess. <laughs> I open the door, and he's... <laughs> he still felt trapped. So I slid my way to the door we have on the side of the garage, just a normal door. You can walk out to the, uh, the trash cans. And so I... Opened that door, propped it open. I've got the big door open, the side door propped, and I thought, okay, I'll come back an hour, and by then it'll certainly be gone. Well, I came back out, and there he is, looking at me, panting. <laughs> he hasn't left. I think some of us sort of get that way. There are, there are things where God wants us to make a step, but we're so trapped, we're so overwhelmed, we want to see the end of it all. We want to know how it all works out. Life can seem hopeless. But one of the great things about the story of Esther is now found in chapter four. There's deep mourning at the beginning of chapter four. There's deep sorrow. But there's a glimmer of hope in the midst of this darkness, this death sentence on the Jewish people. Their neighbors are going to kill them, take their stuff 11 months from now. Everybody, everywhere in the whole empire. And chapter four gives us a glimmer of hope and what it means to be hopeful. Look at chapter four, verse one. When Mordecai learned about all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on burlap and ashes, and went out crying into the city. Here's the decree. He's crying with a loud and bitter wail. He went out as far as the gate of the palace, for no one was allowed to enter the palace gate while wearing clothing of mourning. And as news of the king's decree reached all the provinces, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, wailed, and many lay in burlap and ashes. And we know prayer goes along with fasting. Even if it's not mentioned here, they're probably screaming out to God, help us. Can you imagine having 11 months to know you're going to die? And it's the people who live next door that are going to kill you? And if they don't kill you, they're disobeying the emperor and could maybe be killed themselves? No wonder they've torn their clothes. This is the, the burlap and ashes. These are signs of, uh, of humility and brokenness and, and shame and agony. Verse 4, when Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. What's, what's my cousin, my dad doing out there? What's he doing out there? She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Now, it's interesting, we learn that Esther doesn't know about the decree. She's kept away in the palace somewhere and she has no idea. And remember in chapters one and two, she doesn't reveal her, her nationality, her ethnicity. Mordecai told her not to. Seems to be there was some anti-Semitism stewing in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. So then... She sends this to Mordecai, and Mordecai says, you need to take this decree, show it to Esther, and tell her, you know, she's going to have to help her people. She's queen. She's got to do something. So Hathak, who is a eunuch that's assigned to assist her, goes back with the message from Mordecai. He refuses the clothes, and he wants you to see this decree, and he says, you've got to do something to save the people, the Jewish people, because in 11 months they're going to be destroyed. So Esther sends back word, and, and she says in verse 11, all the king's officials, even the people in the provinces, know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his golden scepter. 
and the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. He says, look, I haven't even been called in. He's probably been spending time with his concubines. I haven't even been called in in 30 days to spend any time with my husband, the king. And you know, and it was a law before Xerxes, uh, the ruler before him had set up this law of the Medes and Persians that if you walked into the presence of the king and you weren't invited, you were immediately killed. Matter of fact, Herodotus, a secular historian, tells us that Xerxes kept men with axes at every door into whatever room he was in, and he kept men with axes next to him, and if you entered in uninvited, they would immediately begin to slice and dice you. Unless, in that split second before they began to slice and dice you, he lifted up his golden scepter as king, and when he held it out, they stopped. So the default was, you're going to be killed, unless he intervened. So she says, what am I? I, I, can't, I can't go in there. I'm not invited. Now. He hasn't invited me in for 30 days. Tell Mordecai that. So Mordecai says in verse 13, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. Don't think you're going to get away. When they find out you're a Jew, you're dead too. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Whether that was human or divine, we don't know, but he knew that either Jews were resilient or God was going to protect them. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps, Esther, you were made queen for just the time as this. Remember last week, she went through 12 months of scary, horrific, brutal, brutal worry about what might happen to her, that she might become a concubine passed around among the king's men. And God sovereignly allows her to become the queen with some protection, but still at his mercy. And, and so she's gone through so much. And Mordecai says, maybe all of this that we didn't understand was happening, maybe all you've gone through in these last five years, all of this has prepared you for such a time as this. Then, he, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, this back and forth from poor Hathak who keeps running back and forth. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And when, though it is against the law, and then, though it is against the law, after those three days, I'll go to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. He took the next step that he could take. She was going to take the next step she could take. Life can be hopeful. From chapter 4, now the resolution isn't here, right? But there's a glimmer of hope here through the words of Mordecai and the response of Esther. Life can be hopeful if, number one, you accept the reality that you'll never be exempt from pain here on earth. I mean, people who, who just act like they could somehow be exempt from any pain or hurt, even death itself, a loved one or any of themselves, and so somehow they can be exempt. No, we live in this broken, fallen world. That's why Mordecai says in verse 13 when he sends word to Esther, to Esther he says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you'll escape when all the other Jews are killed. There is a common suffering we experience and, and hope begins when you accept the reality that you'll never be exempt from pain here on earth, no matter who you are. Sometimes people think, well, if I get power and position and influence and money, you can still die of cancer. You can still have people cheat you. You can still have a broken marriage. You, there is pain in this life. We have to face the reality and adjust our attitudes. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way. He said, you must accept finite disappointment, but never lose infinite hope. So you face the reality, yes, life is broken, but God is still God. 
I have no options, but he has plenty of options. Secondly, life can be hopeful if you understand the truth that God will make a way to accomplish his purposes. God will make a way to accomplish his purposes, whether you let him use you or not. Some people will, will kind of say to me as a pastor, say, you know what, I'm so sick of God, I'm so tired of this, I'm just gonna sit over here on the sidelines and I'm not gonna let him use me, I'm not gonna be involved in anything for, for the good of others or for his glory, I, I'm, just gonna, I'm just gonna check out. And Mordecai says to her, verse 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. You can't just sit this out. You gotta admit, yes, life is broken, but I can be a part of the hope God wants to bring even if I feel trapped. You understand the truth that God will make a way to accomplish his purposes whether you let him use you or not. You see, with God, there is always hope. Paul David Tripp says, hope is not a situation. Hope is not a location. Hope is not a possession. Hope is not an experience. Hope is more than an insight or a truism. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. There's always hope with God. Now, you can sit on the sidelines and sulk, or you can engage with God in whatever way God calls you to, to be a part of bringing that hope into the world, the hope you, I trust, know through Jesus, the one who is hope. God even used the cruelty of a cross, one of the most horrific execution devices ever invented by man, to place his son on that cross to suffer for you and for me. He was buried in a grave. He conquered the grave to give us new life and hope so we could be forgiven of our sins and have life in him. And he will walk with us today as we live in this world. We live in the midst of the brokenness with the hope that he is our savior. He is the hope of the world and that ultimately we'll live with him forever because of what he's done for us, not because of what we've done for ourselves. And if you're here today and you haven't come to that place of putting your faith in Jesus, embrace Christ as Savior today. Trust him as your Savior. I'd love to celebrate with you if you do that today, or if you have questions, I'll be out in the lobby after the service. We have care and prayer team members down front after every service to pray with you about any need. They'll be there to answer questions about what it means to embrace Jesus as Savior, to pray with you. Perhaps you're joining us online, or maybe even in the room. Maybe you're going to have to slip away too quickly, and you've got something to do, and then just text. And we've got a really simple, shorter number that appears below me on the screen. You can just take that number as the number you text, 58568, and then you put Jesus in the message of that text message, We'll send you some resources. We'll follow up with someone on our team to make sure you know what it means to embrace Jesus as Savior. He is God's hope. And God accomplishes eternal purpose through him on the cruelty of the cross. And God is continuing to accomplish his purposes in the world and in our lives. And we have to understand the truth that he will make a way to accomplish his purposes. Maybe you just wanna celebrate the hope you have in Christ. We have communion available again after this service in the prayer chapel. You can go in there and just take communion, speak to a pastor, have someone pray with you. Hope is found in Jesus. Life can be hopeful when we understand the reality that we're not exempt from pain. And we understand the truth that God will make a way to accomplish his eternal purposes. That's a major theme in the book of Esther. But thirdly, life can be hopeful if you embrace the idea that God has you right where he wants you. 
He takes your failure, the failure of others, the circumstances of this broken world, and right where you are, you say, well, I'm trapped. I feel like that gate has come down on me. There's nowhere to go. I feel trapped. Look what he says to Esther as she feels trapped and hopeless and says, I can't even go in and talk to him, uh, and the Jews are gonna be killed in 11 months. And he says to her at the end of verse 14, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. This moment in your life, in the history of the Jews, God has brought you to this point through all those broken variables, those hopeless things. Because you're gonna be a part of the hope. You're gonna be a part of the way that God is gonna provide. Life can be hopeful if you embrace the idea that God has you right where he wants you, whether you wanna be there or not. Whether you wanna be there or not. Sometimes we go through a day and we say, how does this fit your plan, God? Just when I thought I was moving forward, all of a sudden this, and I feel trapped again. I just felt freed, and now I'm trapped with this relationship thing, this stuff going on. Here we are again, God. How does this work? And sometimes we want that answer right now. I like what old Vance Havner said. God writes across some of our days, we'll explain later. Think about the nation of Israel as they move out of Egypt under the direction of Moses. Within a matter of weeks, they are at the Red Sea, and the Red Sea and the mountains have them pinned in on three sides. Red Sea in front of them, huge mountains on either side of them, and then the Egyptian armies come and trap them, and they say to Moses, you've brought us to this trap, to this dead end, we're gonna die. Moses cries out to God, God, what's happening? You told me to lead your people right here. We followed the pillar of cloud and the fi pillar of fire by night. This is where we ended up, and we're in a trap. They're going to kill us, or we're going to just drown, or there's no way out. We have to understand, yeah, that, that's true. We can't escape this pain, but God always makes a way to accomplish his eternal purposes. And even when it looks like his purposes have been thwarted, we have to embrace the idea that God has you right where he wants you. He wanted Esther right there, queen to one of the most evil men in world history. He wanted Moses and the nation of Israel right there, trapped by the Red Sea. He wants you right where you are in the circumstances for such a time as this. What do we do? Well, you take the step that is the next right step. That's where hope begins. You take, you say, but I gotta know all the answers. I gotta know how all the paths will go. I gotta know how this, I gotta know the ultimate outcome. I, I need to see the whole path all lit up. No, God says, you take the next right step. That's what Esther does. She says to Mordecai, you go, you gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Three days to three nights, you fast, go to God. Uh, my maid, maid, maids and my helpers here, we're going to fast. And then after three days, I'm gonna take the right next step. I'm gonna go into the king's chamber to his throne room, and if I die, I die, but all I knew to do is take the next right step. And I often meet Christians who are so paralyzed, they can't move forward because they wanna know how it's all gonna play out when God says, take the next right step. Take the next right step. That's where that glimmer of hope begins. You see, you take the next right step, and then you let God be God. You say, but what will I do if I take the next right step and I can't see the rest of the way? Then you take the next right step and you say, but what if I can't see the rest of the way? You take the next right step and guess what? You're gonna look back at one point and say, look what God did. Look what God did. And he had me in that trapped situation for such a time as this. Sometimes God has you right where he wants you and what you need to do 
is open God's word and walk in obedience to the next right step. Get wise counsel about what the next right step is. Allow the Spirit of God to show you what the next right step is. The nation of Israel was trapped there at the Red Sea, mountains on either side, sea ahead, Egyptian armies behind them. Moses, you brought us here to die. God parts the Red Sea. And we have this glorious picture that they all just said, let's go, and they charge in. Can you imagine walls of water swishing around you? And you know that at any moment, if that collapses, you're gonna be crushed under the weight of the water, you're gonna drown. So when they stepped out on that dry land, and that parted water, they had to take the next right step. And every step for them was the next right step and the next right step. While they've got these walls of water around them, they're taking the next right step. They get to the other side. And what they feared did happen, but it happened to the Egyptian armies. As they followed them in, the waters came crushing down on them. But what did God's people do at the Red Sea? They took the next right step. Throughout the stories of Scripture, what do God's people do when they have hope? They take the next right step. Maybe for you, the next right step is accepting Christ. Maybe for you, you've accepted Christ, but you haven't been baptized. And the next baptism coming up the next month, choose to be baptized, to share your faith with others publicly. Maybe God wants you to start reading his word. That's the next right step for you, or to go to him in prayer. Maybe for some of you who are joining us online and you've gotten too comfortable sitting at home and not joining with the body believers in corporate worship, you need to take the next right step and be here. Maybe for some, it's to end a relationship that's inappropriate and you say, I'm trapped, but you need to end that relationship. Maybe you need to work on your marriage and get to marriage counseling. Maybe you need to begin the process of reconciliation with someone who has hurt you or you've hurt them. Maybe you need to confront someone in their sin or what they've done to you. Maybe you need to go to the doctor. Maybe you need to go work out. Maybe you need to eat better. Maybe you need to get some counseling. Maybe you need to join a small group. Maybe for you the next right step is to take a step into ministry. Don't allow Satan to paralyze you in that trapped place because you say, I can't see the whole path. Take the next right step. Take the next right step. And if we can help you, reach out to us. Because I said at the beginning, when you run out of options and everything seems hopeless, you can have hope because your God never runs out of options. Here we are at the end of chapter four and all we know about Esther so far, just reading it these last two weeks, is that she's gonna take the next right step. And that's what we need to do in our individual lives wherever we feel trapped and let God be God. Father, help me in those areas of my life, my relationships, where I might feel trapped. Help me to take that next right step. I pray for those who you're speaking to them right now. They're hearing the Holy Spirit, not just with a whisper, but it's almost like the Holy Spirit's shouting to them that they need to accept Christ. They need to get baptized. They need to get in God's word. They need to take that next right step. Give them guidance. Help them. Show them what that step is. Give them discernment. Give them wise counselors around them, a brother and sister in Christ or a pastor on our team who would speak into their lives about that next right step. Thank you for this amazing story where your name isn't even mentioned, but it's obvious you're involved. Help all of us to recognize we can't escape the pain of this broken world, but you're gonna accomplish your purposes and what you're about will be accomplished. Help us, Father, then to recognize you might have us right where you want us right now. And then nudge us, even today, take whatever is the next right step. 
and let you be God. And then take the next right step and let you be God. And then we'll look back and see your good hand at work in our lives, even when we couldn't see you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.